What a great week it's been, huh? The Nats won the World Series. That was pretty cool. And then um, Trunk or Treat, which we already talked about, that was, that was really awesome, just uh, seeing everybody come out and thank all of you again just so much for uh, donating candy, for having your trunks parked out there, for being a part of the greeting team, the reception team, the cleanup team, all kinds of teams we had going on. We really do appreciate it. And um, like Pastor Brian said, it was our opportunity really to interact with our community, to be a good neighbor, and to share the gospel with about 500 people. So definitely exciting. Um, in trick-or-treating, have you ever had that experience when you were a kid or maybe taking your kids trick-or-treating when you go to that one house and it's just so scary that it scares them kind of out of their wits and they don't know, do, do you really even want to go trick-or-treating anymore, right? Because they're so, we, when we, when Emma was little, Steph and I, we were taking her around and everything, and then we see this house, and it's kind of, it's got a graveyard thing going on, and all kinds of spider webs and spooky things happening, and we looked at it, we thought about it, and we said, you know, if we take her to that one, this will be the last house, and it will scar her for life. So we avoided that one, so we could keep on trick-or-treating, but you can protect yourself, Right, And you have the opportunity to, okay, I, I will just never go trick-or-treating again because if I do, I risk being just scared out of my mind. And there's this payoff because then you don't get the candy. So you, you kind of got to weigh it. What happens when you're a kid trick-or-treating can sometimes happen in our churches and in our lives. Because for, for us, you know, at one point in our lives, we, we take our faith very seriously very, very seriously, and we take the great commission of going and interacting with unchurched people and just loving them and befriending them and hanging out with them and sharing Jesus with them, and we take that very seriously because we want to do what Jesus called us to do. But in the process of doing that, what can sometimes happen is there's this friendship that's developed and then you go and you eat with them and you hang out with them and, and you're having a good time. And then you begin to share Jesus with them and things get weird because they don't respond. Because they don't believe the way you do. They don't accept the message that, that, you're, that you're sharing. And then you feel like a failure and you don't want to feel like a failure. So you kind of make the decision, you know what, I'm going to protect myself. Maybe I'll just do a little less, share a little less. I'll leave the evangelism to like Billy Graham. You know, he's, he's, the, he's the expert here. I'll bring him to, to church so they can hear a gifted speaker or something like that. But, you know, I just I want to protect my heart a little bit. But we're going to look this morning that we don't really get that option. That, that we have to make the decision to go ahead and risk our heart being hurt to hear stories, to hear the stories of our neighbors and understand where, where they're coming from, what's going on in their lives. And in doing that, sometimes your heart just breaks a little bit, kind of like what happened to Jesus. It tells us that Jesus loved us enough to have a broken heart. Luke tells us this story in the 19th chapter of his gospel, Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. We're starting a new series this morning. It's called Being More of a Neighbor. Uh, it, it ties into our, our theme this year that we're made for more and going through the book of Ephesians. We're just kind of taking a break from that for four weeks and looking at one practical application. How does all this apply 
in our neighborhoods? How, what, what does it mean to, to shift to more Jesus and to more love and to be in, being masterpieces? How does that apply in our neighborhoods? And so this series is designed really to equip, to encourage, to challenge us to be more of a neighbor. And what would happen if our churches, our church, just let's take our church, if, but if all of our churches in the community really took Jesus' command to love our neighbors as ourselves seriously? I mean, what, what would happen if we really believed that command? What, 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 what would we do? How would we structure our lives? What would look different? How would our neighborhoods look different? What would happen? And so those are some of the questions that we'll be asking these next four weeks. Let's go ahead and, and look at it. Uh, how Jesus was a good neighbor to Jerusalem. Luke 19, 41 through 44. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone on top of another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. As Jesus approached the city, he saw it and wept. And if you go on a tour of the Holy Land, even this day, I'm told that, if the, that they can take you to the place where they believe this happened. That there's, there's uh, Jesus was exiting one town and he was coming into Jerusalem and there's this hill up on this ridge and as you go around and you, you go up the hill and you kind of turn this corner on the ridge, I'm told that at that moment it's just like, whoa, boom, all of a sudden you can just see Jerusalem, you just see the whole city and then it happens kind of quick that as Jesus is walking up and he turns this corner, at one moment you don't see anything and at the next moment, boom, there's the skyline and on a, on a perfect day. You can just see all of Jerusalem just miles around. And they say, this is probably the place that Jesus is walking up and he's coming up and then boom, he beholds Jerusalem. And when he does, he just breaks down. He begins to cry. And as he cries, he begins to weep out loud for this city. And he expressed a prophecy that would be fulfilled about 40 years later. It would literally come true. The Romans would finally just get tired of hard-headed Jerusalem, of all of the rebellion, of all of the insurrection that was happening in and around Jerusalem, and they would destroy Jerusalem. In AD 70, the Roman army would lay siege to Jerusalem. They would finally take the city. And when they did, they totally ransacked. There was not a stone left on top of another. In fact, I'm told that if you go there even this day, that you can see piles of stones. Just in, in the, the Romans, they took levers and they dumped the, these big stones off of the temple and off of the walls and just, just they didn't want anything left on top of another. And that's why the, the Wailing Wall, the Southern Wall, is such a, such a sacred site to the Jews because it was the one wall that was left and so to even get to that wall, you've got to kind of walk around different stones, piles of these big stones to get to this place to pray. Jesus knew what would happen in A.D. 70. And he knew it was happening because they didn't recognize who he was. 
because they ignored his message. They wouldn't respond to his message, and they turned to other ways to try to find their salvation, and when they did, it would destroy them. He came up on Jerusalem. He turned the corner. One moment, you didn't see anything. The next, you see everything, and in seeing everything and knowing the lostness of Jerusalem, it just broke his heart, and he wept. It's interesting, isn't it, to serve a God whose heart breaks? I mean, you see other gods, they're all detached, right? These man-made gods, these Greek gods, Roman gods, Persian gods, gods of other religions, they're all detached. They have some kind of barrier. They don't have feelings. They don't, they don't get the whole compassion thing. There is no way to connect with them. There's no way to, to appeal to them. There's no way to talk to them. They're, they're totally detached. They, they don't understand what it means to be human. And that's the radical thing about the gospel, is that in the gospel, God enters humanity. It's the incarnate God, God in flesh. A God who knows exactly what it means to be human. A God who is fully God and fully man, a God who walked in our world, who knows what humanity is all about. The high priest, uh, the, the, the author of Hebrews says that we have a high priest who gets us, who can sympathize with us. And this gives us confidence to approach the throne of grace with confidence, because, with boldness, because of our salvation. He understands. He's walked where we walk. And this is the radical teaching about God. A God who is involved in the lives of his people, who understands his people, who feels our weaknesses and is passionate about what he's doing. And in seeing our weaknesses and being passionate, God is often a broken-hearted God. Genesis 6 tells the story of God looking around his creation, this world that he's made, and he, and he sees all the world that he's made, and he sees humanity, and he sees the brokenness of humanity. And he just gets frustrated. He says, why did I even make humanity to begin with? All they do is evil. And it even says in Genesis that when they're not doing evil, humanity plots about the evil they will do. That it's, just a, it's just a people overcome with evil. And God, he says, why did I do this? Why did I make this? And so then he sends the flood. And just when you think that God would hit the self-destruction button and say, all right, this is it, game over, we're, we're, we're starting again. He calls out Noah, and he says, build the ark, and he gave humans a way out. He didn't just blow the earth to smithereens. He gives humanity a way out. He, he doesn't just, he, he finds a way to get to us. This broken-hearted God who gets to us to, to rescue us, this is the good news of the gospel. And this broken-heartedness, it's something we see throughout the scriptures, uh, not, just, not just God, but his prophets. I mean, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes that I wish that my head were waters and my eyes were fountains so that I could do nothing but cry over the people all day long. Isaiah cries out to his people and he says, why do you buy things that are not long for this world? Why, why, why do you spend your money on stuff that's just going to go away? Why? Hosea in Hosea, when God speaks to the prophet, he says, Ephraim, it's another name for Israel, how can I let you go? I, I trained you up, I'm the one who taught you how to walk, how can I let you go? And then he says, I will not execute my anger, my fierce anger against you. I won't carry this out because I'm God, not man. 
The prophets, the people who knew God, who walked with God, who represented God to humanity, they experienced the same heartbreak of God as they're trying to get through to people. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel, he, he tells us that the Spirit picked him up and took him to a place where he could see the exiles. And he was seeing how they were living. And in seeing the exiles, he was so overwhelmed by what he saw that he just got to a place where the exiles were. And he sat down and he didn't speak for three days. He said nothing for three days. He was just overcome by what he saw. And then Jesus, we see a God who weeps. I mean, his heart breaks for the rich young ruler who just walks away. Lazarus, he weeps at Lazarus' tomb. He weeps because his friend is dead. He weeps because there's death in the world. He, he weeps because there are people around him who don't believe that he has the capability to raise him from the dead. He weeps because there are people who will not believe in the resurrection. He knows the work he's going to do, and he knows for some they won't believe. And so he weeps. And now in this moment, as he turns the corner and he walks up and he sees Jerusalem, his heart breaks and he weeps again. And you almost get the idea that in reading this passage in, in context that Jesus has a plan for why he's going to Jerusalem. Because he's going, because he knows everything that's going on in Jerusalem. He's, he's going there because the people, the, the priests and everybody, they've turned the temple, the place of prayer, into a den of thieves. And he's going there to clean house. He's going there to make things right. He knows what he has to do. He knows he has to stand up for the integrity of his father. He, he, he knows who he is and, and, and what he's doing. And as he turns the corner and he comes up to this hill and he sees Jerusalem, it's almost as if he's overcome by the lostness of the city. And it breaks his heart. You know, we've done a different thing in the church in North America. We like to go to church. We, 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 we like to enjoy everything the church provides. We love the people here. We love looking out for one another, caring for one another, and all that's important and needed and necessary. And, and the Bible speaks to all of that. And we, we even say to our community, hey, come, find us. You know, you ask the Jesus question and We'll give you the answer. We're, we're easy to find. You can't really miss us. We've got a sign out there and everything. You'll, you know where we are. We're here. But have you ever been lost? I mean, really lost, like no bars on your GPS lost, you know, where you got the, the screen and it's just gray or black and tells you that you're in an unidentified area because you are lost. You don't know where you are. You don't know how you got there. You don't know how you're getting back. All you know is you are lost. You might try to find, call your friend or something and your friend says, hey, where are you? Say, if I knew that, I wouldn't be lost. Because you're lost. You don't know where you are. Sometimes we forget that panic, don't we? We forget that feeling in our heart, knowing there's something wrong, but we just can't fix it. I don't, I don't know my way back. There, there is something so messed up that no matter how hard I try, I can't make it right. Sometimes for us, it seems so long ago, that feeling of lostness, that feeling that just seizes us in the moment that we realize, I don't know where I am. I don't know how I got here. I don't know what to do about this. That's why we use that term lost, you know, to describe our unsaved friends. Because they don't know where they are. They don't know how they got there. They don't know their way back. They might not even know they're lost to begin with. They don't need a welcome sign. 
as much as they need somebody to go to them. And we know this to be true, right? Because we read about children who are lost. And you, and you read about a child who's lost, and what happens to the parent? They can't sleep at night, right? They're doing everything they can. I, I got to get to my child. I got to find my child. We're about hikers in, in, a, in a desert or wilderness or someplace, and they're lost. And so what do we do? We send out rescue teams. Go. We cover every inch of the forest, every inch of the land. We got to find the hiker. What happens to them? Let's, let's go out. Let's, let's get them. And we see missing persons reports. We have, you know, family members, and they, and they pass out flyers. Have you seen anyone matching this description? Have you seen them? Do you, do you know where they are? Do you have any leads? Can you help us find them? I was at a lake one day, and we were just playing our family down at this lake, and then a thing goes out. One of the lifeguards announces that a child is missing. A child is lost. And so there's panic, you know, you're by the water, and so they clear everybody out of the lake, and then we just line up. Everyone who is a decent swimmer and everything, we line up almost shoulder to shoulder, and we just walk in, wade into the lake, just kind of covering every inch of the lake that we possibly could, hoping to find that child to get to them. You see, this is the mission of the church, to go to these people who are lost and to do whatever it takes and one of the primary places that God puts us to go and to find the lost and to get to them and to do whatever it takes is our neighborhoods. Because understand this, your neighbors really are lost. According to 2010 statistics, and I don't know, maybe it's gotten better since 2010, I don't know. But in 2010, about 25% of the people living in Portsmouth claim to be evangelical Christians, 25%. About another 20 claim, claim to belong to either Judaism, Mormonism, uh, Islam, or some kind of other Catholicism, some kind of other uh, religion. And then about 55% of the people in Portsmouth just claim to be religiously unaffiliated. Okay? They're not even lying about going to church, right? They just say, hey, we, we don't go. The average Sunday, only about 15% of our neighbors attend a Bible-believing evangelical church on a Sunday morning, about 15%. Your neighbors really are lost. And so this morning, your bulletin looks a little different. You got a tic-tac-toe board, right, on your bulletin. And I know we've got kids in here this morning, and if you've played tic-tac-toe with them already, it's okay. You can just grab a piece of paper and write another tic-tac-toe board. But... Uh, you know, this is a tool just to kind of identify what kind of neighbor are you? What, what kind of neighbor am I? When Jesus turned the corner and saw Jerusalem, he started weeping. Why was he weeping? Because he knew that destruction was coming. He, he knew where his neighbors were headed. He knew their unbelief. I think we'd probably weep too if we knew our neighbors better. And so on this tic-tac-toe board, here, here's what I want you to do first, okay? In this center square, in this center square, I just want you to imagine that this is your home, okay? This is your apartment, this is where you live. And so write the name, uh, write your name and then the names of all the people who live with you in that center square. That's your house, that's your apartment, that's where you live, okay? The eight squares around it, Represent the homes, the apartments, the places that are closest to you, okay? 
And so I'm thinking if we're going to be more of a neighbor, if we're going to take the command to love Jesus as we love ourselves seriously, it probably starts with knowing the names of our neighbors, right? I think that's probably a pretty good place to start. And so in kind of the upper section of these eight places, you just write down the names of your neighbors, the, the ones who live across the street from you, the one who lives behind you, the one who lives catty corner to you, next door to you, wherever you write the names of your neighbors. But if all we know are their names, it's probably still not a whole lot to know about them, right? I mean, so I think to be a good neighbor, to be a godly neighbor, to be a neighbor like Jesus, it probably extends a little bit beyond that. So what I'd like you to do under their name is to write something you know about them. And it can't simply be like they drive a red car, something you've just kind of observed. It's got to be like, hey, this is, this is their job. This is where they work. This is where their kids live, their grandkids live. These are the names of their kids, grandkids. This is what they, they like to go bowling on Thursday nights, whatever it is. But some kind of detail that you've learned about your neighbors just from having conversations with them. And then below that, I'd like you to write either yes or no to the question, have I ever had that neighbor into my house or have I ever been in their house and have I ever shared Jesus with them? Yes or no? And that's kind of, that's kind of the mark, right? If, if I'm a good neighbor, if I love my neighbors as I love myself, that's probably the pretty basic place to start. Do I, then, do I know their names? Do I know anything about them? Have I ever just had a meal with them? Share Jesus with them? Because if I love them the way I love myself, surely we'll do that. The thing is, for, for a lot of us, this is almost like a card of shame, right? Because we look at it and we say, what, what kind of a neighbor am I? Have I, have I taken the privilege that God has given me as he's put me in my neighborhood? Have I, have I taken that stewardship and neglected it? Or have I done something with it? You know, the statistics for most of us say this, that if you look around your community, around your neighborhood, the people that are living next door to you, across the street from you, behind you, that for most of us, maybe one of those other eight families went to a Bible-believing church this morning. Maybe one. For some of you, you're the only one. A lot of you. And the prayer can sometimes be, God, help me. I, I, I'm the only Christian here. And that's a good prayer. We need our help there. But perhaps it is God's grace that he has sent you there. It is God's grace to those neighbors, your neighbors, that he has you living where you're living. And I'll be praying that one day you won't be the only Christian there, not because more Christians will move in, but because you are faithful with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because you're a good neighbor who just gets to know them, who has some meals, who shares Jesus, and that there will be a difference in your neighborhood because you live there. See, Jesus put you there because your neighbors really are lost. They can't find themselves. They don't know how they got to where they got. And the good news of the gospel, I tell you this all the time, it's not that we find Jesus. 
Jesus wasn't lost. He didn't need us to find him. The good news of the gospel is that while we were lost, Jesus came and found us. And now being found, he sends us out to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives, to tell others the good news of Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't leave us lost, but adopts us into a family. We're the ones to go, to share with our neighbors. It's a great privilege. We don't just ask our neighbors to come here. That's not what a search party does. That's not what you do for lost people. For lost people, you go to them. So are you willing to love your neighbors like you love yourself? If you do, I think it'll probably break your heart a little bit. Several years ago, I went to a public high school. They were, they were having this event. I was serving as a, a counselor. It was an event called Crossing Thin Ice for, for high school students who were just struggling with different fears, um, things going on in life, difficulty, been through hard things. And, and so the, the idea was the event, with the event was to try to help these high school students just kind of open up and share and talk a little bit. And so, and they did a great job of facilitating that and creating an environment where the students felt free to talk and and share. And uh, the speaker kind of led things off and used the iceberg illustration. I don't know if you ever heard it before, but the the idea goes like this, that when you see an iceberg, if you go to like Alaska or someplace and see an iceberg, that you really only see about 20% of the iceberg, right? Because the the, the rest, the other 80% is underwater, and you can only see what's above the water line. And that's about 20%. About 80% is underwater. And so the illustration goes that in life, like with icebergs, most of the time we kind of reveal about 20% of our lives to other people. And we kind of hide that other 80% and we keep that below the water line. We don't really want people to know the other 80. We'll, we'll let you know the top half, the top 20. But for most people, the other 80, you're just never going to know. And so the goal of this event was to kind of lower the water line a little bit and to get these students just kind of sharing and talking. And so they did different things. They, they did a thing where we all started on one line and then they started asking questions. Have you ever uh, had alcohol? And everyone just, you know, whoever has, they takes a, takes a step forward. Have you ever felt um, objectified? And whoever has takes a step forward. And if you haven't, you just kind of stay where you are. But just to kind of build a little bit of camaraderie and students saying, okay, I guess I'm, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one who's, who's gone through this. And then after that, they put us in these small groups. And that's really why, why I was there, to be a counselor for this small group of high school students. And they had these questions that we're to ask, and, we're, and I'm asking the questions in my group. And, and the students are sharing, and they're going around, and they're sharing their stories, and their stories of heartbreak, of pain, of suffering, really difficult, hard things. And I'm, I'm just looking at them, thinking, man, no, no high school student should have to endure this stuff. And then this one girl spoke, and she was in my group, and I was even looking at her wondering, why? I wonder why she's even here, because she was kind of quiet, but super polite, super kind and, and generous and, and looked um, well put together and just kind of looked nice. And I, and I was wondering why she was there. And then she started speaking. And she told me what, told our group what life was like at home. 
and what was going on and just details of her life that with uh, the kids in the service this morning, it's probably not the details to share, but I'm hearing those, all these details and I'm getting overcome, right, with just emotion and I'm choking back tears and I'm telling myself, okay, I still got to facilitate this discussion. I, I just, I, I got to get through, I got to keep asking the questions. I can't just like break down right here. And so we get through the discussion. It's kind of the end of the day and I'm still just overwhelmed by her story and I'm just telling myself, okay, I just got to get to the car. Just got to get to the car. Just got to make it to my car. I get to the car and just put my head on the steering wheel and just cried because I knew her story. I knew what was going on and I just started praying, God, just tell, tell me what to do. How, how am I going to reach those students? Well, I'll do whatever. Just, just tell, me, tell me what to do, God. And I remembered, you know, they had given all of us counselors, it was a public school, and they had given all of us counselors instructions of how to talk and how to share and um, cautions against sharing your faith and that kind of thing. They didn't want us to proselytize and all this. And, but they said, however, if the students were to ask you how you deal with anything or how you cope with anything, I mean, you're allowed to be honest. You're, you're allowed to tell them. And so I was thinking that. And so the next day, we're having the discussion again, and we're back in our small group time. And I asked them, would you guys like to know how I deal with stuff and how I cope with things? So that I could share Jesus with them. I, I don't know if it made an eternal impact in any of their lives or not, but I know in that moment at least they heard a message of hope and a life of hopelessness our neighbors really are lost and so my, my encouragement to you is not just to take this tic-tac-toe board as just a gimmick or anything but to, but to use it as a challenge and to really go home and, and to put it maybe on your refrigerator or on your mirror or wherever maybe you want to write out a bigger one so you have a little more room to write details in um, so that you really know who your neighbors are. I didn't originate the, the tic-tac-toe board, by the way. Um, part of the story of its origination, a church in Denver, or outside of Denver, Colorado, one of the pastors at, at this church, he, he was attending uh, just a civil meeting, a civil government thing, and the mayor was there, and and the mayor, uh, who claimed to be a believer, is just kind of sharing a little bit. And then the mayor was lamenting the fact that, you know, our neighborhoods just don't know each other anymore. That neighbors just kind of live their lives behind the door of their home. They don't really get out in the neighborhood. Neighbors just don't know each other the way we used to. And so he's lamenting this. And the pastor's there and he's hearing this. And he knows, okay, well, I've got a decent number of people in this neighborhood and this neighborhood and this neighborhood. And so he asked the question, Mayor, do you notice any discernible difference in these neighborhoods? Because I know a number of my people live in those neighborhoods. And the mayor kind of shakes his head and looks at the city councilmen and they all shake their heads too. And they said, no, we, we, there's really no discernible difference of just interacting in neighborhoods from any other neighborhood in our community. And the pastor said, ah, this cannot be. 
the way we represent Jesus must be better than this. And so as he's praying, part of, part of the things that came out was this tic-tac-toe board. To say, okay, here's where I am. Here are my neighbors. Do I know them? More than just their names, do I really know them, know stuff about them? Have I eaten with them? Have I shared with them? And so the question comes to us, does our neighborhood look different because we're there? Are we being the representatives we're called to be? Are we stewarding the grace that God has given us well? And so you've got your tic-tac-toe board. I want you to fill it out the best you can. And, you know, maybe you know a couple neighbors. Maybe you, know, maybe you can fill it all out, all three questions, all eight squares. However it is, I just want you to fill it out the best you can. And as, after you do that, I'm not asking, actually going to ask you to do anything radical like go talk with them. All I'm going to ask you to do is begin by praying for them. Just pray for those eight names, those eight, and some of the squares may be empty, but just pray for those squares. Pray for those people, the people who live in those homes, the people who live in those apartments. And as you're praying for them, I'm going to be praying for you, that God breaks your heart for them, that he brings you to the point where you say, God, I'll, I will say anything, I will do anything, tell me what to do. How can I be more of a neighbor? How can I be the kind of neighbor you've called me to be? And in doing that, I'm just praying that you know, you'll, you'll begin to hang out in your front yard a little more. Maybe take walks around your neighborhood. Maybe be on the lookout in your apartment complex and look, looking for people and just, just be out there. And that then you'll, you'll listen to them. You'll just ask questions. Kind of remember the way that Jesus shared on the, on the Emmaus Road. It wasn't just, okay, now I've got your opportunity. Boom, let me let you just have it. But you just ask questions. You get to know them. You show them that you care, that you're interested in their life. And then getting to know them a little bit. That, hey, would you want to come over for dinner sometime? Want to grab coffee? Want to play a game? Want to hang out? Want to do a barbecue? You'll eat together. Develop a real friendship, relationship. And, and that Jesus will just naturally come out because it's who you are. You know, when, when you love Jesus, you, you just can't keep it in, you know. It just comes out. It's not this programmatic speech. It's just who I am and it overflows. And I'll be praying that that happens as you take the time to love your neighbors well. Because I believe that God's called us all to be more of a neighbor, to really love our neighbors as ourselves. It wasn't just kind of some flippant command or a good idea, but this is who we're to be. And in taking Ephesians into our neighborhoods and saying, okay, I gotta shift to more Jesus. I gotta shift to being more of the masterpiece and, and this dispenser of grace that I'm made to be. I must exhibit more love. I'm praying that for our church. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us enough not, not to leave us as strangers, not to leave us as orphans, but you sent your rescue team in the person of Jesus Christ to come and find us while we were lost. And God, when he came and he looked at his neighbors, it broke his heart. God, will you break our heart for the things that break your hearts? for the lostness of humanity, for people who don't know you, who don't have the hope of knowing you.
And may we be the kind of neighbors you've called us to be. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.